uh, interview, he said, oh, by the way, did you know that there was a Soviet spy who lived in Dayton and possibly close to where you grew up during World War II at a, a secret site of the Manhattan Project? And he gave me a few details, but he didn't give me the name. And so I was very polite. And I said, well, thank you. Great interviewing you. Got off the phone and, and continued in my pursuit on that topic. But I could not stop thinking about this. You know, it's that driving mix of skepticism and curiosity. Welcome back to the Live Drop. My guest is Anne Hagedorn to talk about her new book, Sleeper Agent about the little-known Soviet-trained atomic spy who got away. George Koval was born to Russian immigrant parents, raised in Sioux City, Iowa, but at the age of 17, he emigrated back to Russia in 1932, where after university, he was discovered and trained by the GRU. He returned to the U.S., registered for the draft, and used his scientific background to secure an assignment at a uranium and plutonium site in Oak Ridge, where he had full access to all facilities and passed along information to Moscow via an electronic shop in Manhattan. He escaped back to Russia without a scratch. It was only years later that the FBI identified him. He might have faded into obscurity had he not tried to collect social security from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, though writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn may have inadvertently outed him in the late 60s. Anne and I spoke about her research, narrative technique, but mostly we just tried to figure out the elusive George Koval. Begin transmission now. So, Mark, did you like the book? I really liked the book. <laughs> I really did. You know, I, at first I started reading it. I wasn't really sure the, the, the cover of it looks like it's going to be a, like a fictional novel. One of my uh, previous episodes was episode 29 with uh, Joyce Wayne, who wrote a book about the um, Guzenko affair in Ottawa. Oh. And oh. she she had written a um a kind of a fictional story that was her way of going into it. Oh, I think wow. I yeah. think because maybe a certain member of her family was involved in the Gusenko wow. circle in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So so her hers was fictional, but this was very, very non-fictional, very compelling. And it also had some really great kind of turns and surprises in here, which uh, oh, I want right. I want to ask you about as as we go into this. I just thought. I mean, you, you call it sleeper agent, the atomic spy in America who got away. And I'm wondering, how did he? It's amazing that he did get away. I just wanted to, I, and I've listened to another one of your interviews where you talked about, you know, how you first, how this first came to your attention, Oak Ridge. And maybe you could uh, share that with us. It doesn't happen very often, I have to say. You know, there are two ways. I write narrative nonfiction, as you know. And so my job is to engage general readers about meaningful issues. I'm the conduit between mounds of information and general readers through the art of storytelling. I deliver issues, complexities, uh, you know, all kinds of topics that are in danger of falling through the cracks. That's usually uh, one of my criteria. But uh, so there are only two ways to do it. And one is you pick your issue, you pick your topic, and then as you're researching it, you find the narrative thread that will best bring it alive, deliver it to the general reader. And that's the usual way. Only two times have I had the uh, great privilege of being of bumping into a remarkable story that grabbed me from the start. And that that one of those two times was for a sleeper agent. It had a working title all the way through, uh, undetected. And then SNS changed it at the last minute. And um, I think both titles were good. 
But but at any rate, I began undetected slash sleeper agent. Basically, after I was interviewing someone for the other way of finding the narrative, right? I had been researching a topic for a book. It was uh, 2016. And the gentleman I was interviewing uh, knew I had grown up in Dayton, Ohio. And so at the end of the uh, interview, he said, oh, by the way, did you know that there was a Soviet spy who lived in Dayton and possibly close to where you grew up during World War II at a, a secret site? of the Manhattan Project. And he gave me a few details, but he didn't give me the name. And so I was very polite. And I said, well, thank you. Great interviewing you. Got off the phone and and continued my pursuit on that topic. But I could not stop thinking about this. You know, it's that driving mix of skepticism and curiosity. A week later, I began digging. I just uh, went on Google to see if I could at least find out his name. And I found an article from about uh, a decade before that was the news piece, uh, an excellent news feature in the New York Times because of uh, Vladimir Putin giving this spy a posthumous award. So consequently, you know, I was able to pick up this name, George Koval. Then I put together my usual list of, you know, what seems to be known, what isn't known, what has to be known if I'm going to really develop a uh, biography. Next thing I did, I filed, used the, called the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press to get an expert there to tell me the latest, best ways to apply using the Freedom of Information Act for FBI reports. Then jumped in the car, drove to College Park, Maryland, where the uh, National Archives are, stayed in D.C. for about a a week or 10 days, interviewed some people. And that DC trip was the turning point because um, then I realized this is the real thing. It will, it will be a challenge because uh, he wasn't caught. I knew it would be a challenge. And, you know, it's bad enough writing about a spy, you know, trying to find a true story about a spy. But if you don't have, uh, because to find every detail that's necessary to, you know, tell the whole story. But in this case, there were no trial transcripts because he was never caught. Right. <laughs> and so that was uh, quite a challenge. And uh, I discovered it, bumped into it by accident after a, you know, in the midst of that wonderful interview. And, and then I, uh, as many friends and family will tell you, I barely took a day off yeah, from then on. I have an elevator pitch if you want me to read it. Yeah, go ahead. Let's hear it. You want me to read the elevator yeah. pitch? Yeah. Do your does your audience know what an elevator pitch is? Tell them what an elevator pitch is. You know, an elevator office. elevator pitch is uh, <laughs> something you pitch to somebody in an elevator. Yeah, so let's right. Go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're the author. Standing well, it depends in the on elevator. how high the yeah. building is, really, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's a four story, one of those that's old funny. clanky metal elevators, you know, that, or is this going to be exactly right? Yeah. Oh my goodness, you're right. How, let's just say it's a twelve story. Yeah. But no, it's no, it's got to be a little more than 12 stories. Yeah, 72. It, it, it can only be, uh, I, I don't know, 60 seconds, I think. But anyhow, here's my elevator pitch Sleeper Agent is the biography of a Soviet military intelligence officer who, as a U.S. Army corporal, was given full security clearance in America's top secret World War II project to build the first atomic bomb. 
what we know as the Manhattan Project. His name was George Koval, born and raised in Iowa. He was known for charming everyone he met, loved baseball, was a skilled shortstop, and could reel off the history and stats of every big league pitcher. He played bridge, belonged to a bowling league, was a fan of Walt Whitman and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and was by several accounts quite the ladies' man. He obviously blended well into the American culture throughout his eight years as a Soviet spy in America, a time during which he sent atomic secrets to Moscow to help speed up the creation of their own atomic bomb. So then the elevator gets to the floor and then everybody's starting to leave. And then the author says, among the numerous fascinating details is what you will learn from the book's subtitle. He was never caught. So anyhow, there's the elevator. <laughs> like, and then it's like, ma'am, why are you following me to my office? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it should be called the elevator pitch plus. Elevator pitch plus. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We're looking at someone who came from a Jewish family. Well, his parents came in great detail uh, through the Ellis Island of the West, through Galveston, Correct. Texas. Right. Um, the in Galveston 1910. Project. I like, yeah, the Galveston. Yeah, very I wonder if that's where Bob Dylan's parents came from, or his relatives came from. I have no idea. Just I guess. have no idea, but but I have to tell you, I'm very curious about who did come through there and where they settled west of the Mississippi. But anyhow, fascinating part of detail. Uh, his parent, his father came in 1910 and was placed in Sioux City, Iowa. His mother came in 1911, and then George Koval was born um, uh, December 25th, 1913. So George has an American childhood. He grows up in Sioux City with his parents. Uh, He excels in sports. He's a smart kid. He's more or less Clark Kent growing up in the Midwest. But things start to come apart around his teen years. I mean, he only stays until he's 19. He leaves in 1932. He was the representative for the Young Communist Party in Iowa. He was the uh, representative, and he went to a Chicago. It's a great detail in the book. The AVI? Yeah, he he goes to Chicago for the yeah big convention in 1930. He was at University of Iowa studying engineering, and it was either there or during a summer in Sioux City. He connected with a group that was protesting poverty, and he was arrested in a big protest. So you know there were that I think that was 1931 when he left in 1932. He did leave tracks of his beliefs, but you have to remember he was only 15 years old when he graduated from a high school, right. which was 1930 in 1929. So, so he was 18. So before, so when he left in 1932, yeah. um, he'd also come under the attention of the American Vigilant Intelligence Federalist Inst- right. Institution or investigation, something like this. And there was, uh, I mean, he also came to the attention of some, uh, you know, leading like American communist groups as well after after this i guess speech he gave in chicago as, as a young man do you think that uh that anybody kind of tracked that moment in, in 1932 i know he gets to he gets to the soviet union at the time his parents settle into a communal apartment he starts going to school and then you know through a girlfriend of his he becomes comes under the attention of the gru and they recruit him at that point this is a little much later on. It's later but, uh, on. Yeah. But I'm just wondering, did he come to the uh, Russian intelligence's attention in 1932 at that point? Or do you think it was? That's just- a great question. Not to my knowledge, but it's 
you know, <laughs> maybe what my next book should be is the fictionalized version of this book. You know, yeah. you want to hear my pitch is, for the beginning? I hear my pitch yeah. for the beginning. Yeah, right. Your beginning, you have this this old man at um, what is obviously his wife's funeral. There's very oh, few people there, yeah. mostly neighbors. You know, 85 year old man uh, bearing his bearing his <laughs> wife. You look around, you see his you see his little apartment. He really has. Nothing, nothing there. He's, you can tell he was a teacher. There's some clues about this, but there's also, you know, there's also something relating to baseball at America. (laughs) Yeah, right. So at that point, at that point, he makes up his mind. He gets out of his apartment, goes down the stairs, starts walking down, takes the train, maybe goes through Moscow, arrives at the U.S., arrives at the U.S. Embassy, right? Right. And tells them he wants to collect social security, right. <laughs> that he was a veteran. And you're like, yeah. what, what are you yeah. talking? You mentioned being yeah. the consular agent who meets this guy. Of course he didn't, but that was more or less the moment that revealed him publicly. Would you agree? Oh, when he, when he applied. This is 1999. For, 1999. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, no, uh, it, it made him, it put him on the radar of, of the GRU. The GRU. Which resulted in an increase in his pension. Yeah. And also to assign a GRU, former GRU officer, to be a GRU historian who would then write the biography of this spy using only his uh, code name. But, you know. Delmar. Yeah. <laughs> Actually. Where did Delmar, yeah, Delmar. Where did Delmar come from? Oh yeah, good question. There, there are many. I, you know, I had this marvelous Russian translator working with me throughout this, so that she could be digging through information in Russian publications, finding all kinds of wonderful letters. You know, the the detail of how he got back into America after he was trained as a Red Army military off the side of Vostok and hiding underneath, Office, underneath the yeah, the, yeah, that hiding underneath the couch of the captain's family. And the, is that the little, wonderful yeah, or what? Yeah. I, I, Where did you read about this? Where did you the read amount it? of work? The what? Where did you find some of the stuff? I'm wondering. Okay, this is a great oh, detail. Oh, Where did you find this? Our, like the letter from his wife, well, Mila, and yeah, right. Well, you had to look in the source notes. It came, those came from Russian sources right. that Masha found. But I had been working so hard trying to figure out how he got back in. I do think I know the name that was on the false passport, but that I couldn't use it in the book because I could not confirm it. And, you know, my editor and I would talk about these things, you know, what can go in this book? You've got to be able to have, you know, very, very detailed source notes uh, that show where you got everything. And there can't be any guesses here. That's why it would be really fun to do a sequel where, you know, it's all the stuff on the cutting room floor and all the guesses. But I think I do know the name that he probably used on the false passport, but but that I could not nail that down. And so there was always this big question, really uh, big blank. Uh, how did he get back in in 1940? I mean, think about it. He, he, you know, from the point of view of documentation in America, he had never left because he was on a, you know his the family passport in 1932 when the family went back that, that was not filed under his name and so you know he as far as documentation he had never left so he could easily come back in and then how could he 
become George Koval again because that was going to be very valuable for him. Um, yeah. And it's actually ideal. I mean, he was one of the first illegals to actually use their real name, which seems which in 1910 that whole crew that was picked up, um, you know, and most most recently with uh, Maria. You know, right. Bettina, yeah. That seems so to be the thing is using so, the real name because we can't use. Yeah, well, it, it was we can't steal people's names case. of yeah. children who have died anymore. This was a, a level which is a, a conversation for another time. The list of prescient strategies that were used in his uh, undetected uh, mode. So at, at any rate, uh, yeah, so he he was able to then register in night, you know, for the draft. In, by registering for the draft in January of 1941 in New York, it just looked like, oh, you know, he lived, he made up a bunch of stuff about what he was doing in the 1930s. And then he became George Koval, who had lived in Iowa all those years. And now in 1940, in 1941, he was living in New York. So I've got another idea. Let me interrupt you for yeah. a second. Sorry. Yeah. My, my, it's funny because my uh, people excited by a topic. Yeah, go I, ahead. You get yeah. excited, you start talking about it. But I think also you got to have in this movie where, of course, he was, you know, he was George Koval and he, you know, registered for the draft in 1941. But and we'll find a little bit later, there was another George Koval in New York. Oh, yeah. Well, time. actually, and I really feel bad. And I, and yeah, I, I wonder yeah, about that. Yeah. And that's an interesting story. I love that. Yeah. You could, that could be your entry into the whole thing where suddenly, I mean, I don't know how this fireman named George Koval, who wasn't. George Koval that your book is about, who was a, you know, a fireman had gone to, you know, in the Bronx, in the Bronx city college in New York as well, but had studied economics, I guess. Yes, and that's right. What was interesting about him is that you mentioned in the beginning, you said George Koval, the real George Koval was a bit of a ladies man. And this yeah. fireman, George Koval's wife was getting <laughs> phone calls from Who's it getting calls from? Well, women from uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, which is, uh, you know, interesting. Yeah. So uh, the timing of that, you know, when you do a book like this, one of the keys years ago, I interviewed uh, a prosecutor in New York and asked him, what are the keys to really productive investigations? And he said, chronologies, do as many chronologies as you possibly can. And then you'll see intersections right? You'll see overlaps, you'll see connections that you would never have imagined. So that, and and then the other part of the advice was there are no coincidences. Like, you know, after George gets, it comes back and in early 1941, he enrolls at Columbia University in their uh, university extension program. You know, did he do this because uh, just because, well, he wanted to meet some friends, make new friends in the new town, you know, or uh, why did he do it? Uh, there are no coincidences. I mean, that was really a very, very smart move because some of the most, you know, brilliant physicists and chemists were there and some who would Columbia at that time. And there had been even an article in the New York Times, I think, in May of 1940, uh, talking about all the amazing experiments and details of academic world at Columbia with the focus on nuclear physics. So, and some of those people played stellar roles in the Manhattan Project. So, so you know that was not a coincidence. So, there's an interesting coincidence that I saw in there, and to to really, uh, I know you mentioned chronology is important, but I'm just 
kind of doing long jumps all over this yeah. uh, chronology. You have to, you have to excuse me. I mean, he, I mean, the, yeah. the great thing, I mean, George Koval would say the great thing, but like his major accomplishment was, was really confirming what um, a lot of what Klaus Fuchs had already. Um, About pl- plutonium. Yeah. Yeah. So they wouldn't doubt that. So the Kurchatov, Igor Kurchatov, the head scientist in the atomic bomb project, um, uh, would, could then believe what he'd been told about plutonium because, of course, they were skeptical of, of all the... Yeah, so the confirmation was important, but one of the in, really interesting... Yeah, but, but that was not the main thing. I think the polonium, I think that recipe for the polonium, when you think, if you look at the details, to me, that was really fascinating uh, that it took more than two years to figure out exactly the best way to produce polonium, which is the fuel for the uh, trigger of the bomb. It, it took two years of exper- two experiments, one going on in Oak Ridge and one in Dayton. And uh, George Koval worked at the plants where both of those experiments were happening. So he knew the recipe for polonium. I think that's really crucial. Well, you, you knew the, the containers they were using, the, the, the processing, everything. Yeah. And while he he's, and while he's, while he's yeah. turning in that information, right, <laughs> someone, I don't think they've really discovered who, maybe you have in your research, but some Russian or Soviet spy was sending a message to a diplomat in the u.s embassy which was picked off by someone who ended up being the cellmate of who who ended up writing it in his in his book in night which was published in 1968 i don't know it's tough to follow but maybe you could talk about that connection oh yes well actually um i can uh it it was um uh, it's a fascinating detail i mean if you really think about it there are no coincidences there, there are no coincidences, and that um, that was a tough one. I mean, it, because I, I like to prove everything. You talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Full. It's circle. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the first circle Who and, refers to and, a character yeah, named George Solzhenitsyn and a uh, fellow prisoner were assigned to special research testing uh, ways of uh, transcribing tapes. And so they were given this tape and they did transcribe it. And in the name. You had to do a lot of research and confirmation before you could print something. Do you think that was a little careless of Alexander Solzhenitsyn to kind of throw that name out? Um, What's really interesting about that is that the fact that it was the name George Koval was confirmed uh, in a memoir that Solzhenitsyn's partner, uh, transcription of that particular tape in the Sharashka. He published, I think it came out in English in 1983, in Russian in 1981. That confirmed that the storyline in the original, in the first circle. And so that confirmed that, yes, it was true. Possible defector was telling the embassy that there was an atomic spy in America who used an electronic shop as a cover shop and was going to be sending information soon. And he wanted the embassy to know that. And so that's what became the beginning of the Solzhenitsyn Uncensored version of In the First Circle. And so in the end, as 
one of the reviewers, I think, said uh, Solzhenitsyn really outed George Kobel. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it fell through the cracks for many, many, many years. Historically. And really the first uh, first person to ever reveal who Delmar, codenamed Delmar, George Kobel was, was George Kobel when he signed uh, that the book written by the GRU historian uh, that came out, I think, in 2002, GRU and the Atomic Bomb. Uh, about using the name George Kobo, I'm sure that Solzhenitsyn believed that was a code name. Oh, right. And so did his partner in the uh, Shiroshka, whose memoir was called uh, Ease My Sorrows, and uh, Kobolev. And Kobolev showed that his memory uh, of the incident exposing Kobol matched uh, Solzhenitsyn's account in the beginning of In the First Circles. Yeah, so he did eventually unravel I mean, he was, he did come under the FBI's attention as early as 1950. 1954, July 1954. Okay, but it was 1952 that they first came onto the electric shop, right? Yeah, that's right. Good job. But they took them two years to kind of, it took them two years to compare his employees with anybody who had worked (laughs) with any government agency. Yeah, well, it was July 19th, 1954. The FBI issued a report out of the New York office ordering a full throttle investigation, quote, to ascertain present whereabouts and employment of George Coble, unquote. Yeah, but honestly, the, the thrill for me about all this is, you know, discovering a discovering a new uh, a new spy, obviously, and uh, and then talking to the person who wrote it and did the research. And I guess uh, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your research in on the Russian side of things. I mean, did you did you experience any difficulties? Obviously, it was the GRU doesn't exactly have a Freedom of Information yeah. Act, but um, could you describe your research into that well, side? That of was through Masha, my uh, Russian translator. The two of us would dig uh, through uh, Russian publications, which she would dig through Russian publications. I would come up with questions, and, he, and so then uh, she would look at uh, documents and secondary sources. There were two Russian scholars that that I've had exchanges with. There's George Koval's grandniece who has a Koval family archive. And so, you know, the plan was always to go uh, to Moscow. My editor said, well, you know, the main part of the story, it happens in America. This is an American story. I like to go where the story is. So really for part three, when George returns to Moscow, that would have been the time, the details that I would have called probably from a trip to Russia, but because of COVID before the deadline, it wasn't possible. So that that put much more pressure on Masha and me. Uh, she and I worked very well together. And if you look in the source notes, you'll see a lot of the Russian sources. The most obvious that people you know, have gone to is uh, Vladimir, um, uh, Vladimir Lota, who wrote several articles about George, and he was the one who was assigned to be, he was the GRU historian who was assigned to write the biography of George. So those were in Russian, and then there are two Russian scholars who've uh, written biographies of George, so we found those, and they're all noted in the notes essay, the acknowledgments, and the source notes, so you can see where all of that came from. What's the human constants? Oh, the human constants, what we all 
understand, you know, you know, what drives us to make certain decisions, all humans, you know, so you have to sort of dig and find the human constants. Uh, you know, I, I wanted this book to go to delve into the psychology of the spy, you know, to show the hopes, fears, and beliefs that spurred his decisions and accomplishments. So uh, everyone's life must have meaning, right? And I wanted to unveil the people and events in his life that shaped the meaning. Um, That meant I had to immerse uh, the reader into not just the historical context, but also to deepen the themes and the significance of what he did and why he did it. So the human constants are just, it's like Nick Clooney. He he was one of my early readers and Nick loved the book. And he said it was because he really felt connected to the lead character, Koval, because and that Koval really helped him to understand the tug of war, basically, the Cold War struggle between the American dream and the communist uh, workers' paradise, and so that I, I thought was really great because he he felt that uh, you know for him Koval's life personified that struggle. You really explain the kind of the conditions, especially the anti-Semitism. I mean, going back to Russia, and then after all that he's done, experiencing anti-Semitism on the rise again in in the Soviet Union. Um, you can imagine that there must have been some. Uh, Yes, yeah, so, some 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 inner conflict and some you know having to come to terms with with some illusions that he might have had, but um, you know there's one thing about any any story about a character. I mean, if you think about like the the hero's journey, there's always the the return when he comes back and he kind of shares this information. And the one of the one of the tragedies, I think, personal tragedies that a spy would you know, what encounters, they don't, they don't, they're not really able to sort of share their story. They're not really able to come back and teach. They're not really able to come back and lead the next generation. There was a conversation he'd had with, um, but I've just been interested to know more about it was this conversation with someone who he'd, he'd worked with, you know, where he called him up on the phone in I think 2003. Could you? They, I think they uh, exchanged letters for several years and also, they and and then uh, George's grand Arnold Arnold Kramish Arnold Kramish. It, it's not surprising that late in life he would e- eventually open up a bit uh, to a former colleague who was an expert on espionage history. I mean, you had to look at uh, Arnold Kramish's. Um, yeah, his background ex- exceptionally bright. About many many publications. Very knowledgeable about. Uh, espionage in America, in Germany, in the Soviet Union, and uh, they were colleagues uh, at Oak Ridge. And so uh, Arnold Kramish figured it out. He figured out that the author, this is a great detail, I hope you thought so, um, that March 1st, 1949 report that it only could have come from George Cobalt. Yeah, right? that Lavrentia, uh, Beria, who at that point was, uh, you know, the head of Soviet secret police. He had been, uh, he was Stalin's uh, deputy premier at, at that point. He had chief of the Soviet atomic bomb project. Anyhow, so he was assigned uh, to write this report that 
then was later found that, that included uh, the polonium details, plutonium, and this fascinates me because uh, the and we really should talk about the health physics at some point. You know, it's one thing to say that a spy was in Dayton or in uh, Oak, at Oak Ridge, uh, but it's another thing to find out what he did every day. And he was a health physicist. Right. And so he had access to all the facilities and all of the uh, efforts and projects to create uh, safety from, to protect all the workers from radiation contamination. And, you know, that's huge. So it, even in the midst of his espionage activity, he was a, he was a supporter of the working man. That's exactly right. Oh, that's well, right? oh, Mark. That is so excellent, and you're you're so right. And that's going to bring a hold that thought for a second because that's uh, coming right. coming to that. What he was doing, uh, it, it, he was asked to write this report, and so March first, nineteen thirty nineteen forty nine, turned it into uh, Beria. And then it is found, um, in, I think, in the Russian Ministry of Atomic Energy by two American scholars who were writing a biography of Theodore Hall, another uh, spy. And Arnold Kramish read that. I think that book came out in the mid-1990s. And Arnold Kramish read it. And in it, I so respect those authors because in it, they said, we are not sure about this. We're not sure that what was said in this report, which was a hugely important report. What does it say? I quoted what the those scholars said about the importance of the report in the nuclear arms race eventually. And they said, we're not sure that uh, Ted Hall wrote this because there are all these uh, questions about the timing. So Arnold Kramish read the book and found that and said, well, it wasn't Ted Hall. <laughs> Ted Hall wasn't at Oak Ridge. Ted Hall wasn't in Dayton. He didn't know he wasn't a nuclear physicist. He wasn't a health physicist, you know. Um, and so that's how his relationship with uh, Koval uh, began, I think. You know, he wrote him a note. He sent him a copy of the book. He sent, uh, he also got uh, copies, uh, Masha was able to find copies of that March 1st, 1949 report, 139 pages, and Arnold Kramish sent some of those. I mean, it sneaks up on you. It's nonfiction, but you do, you do place enough in here where I'm kind of, what was the thing you said? Like, uh, or I'm kind of rooting for him, you know? Okay. Oh, that's the problem. I'm yeah. feeling sympathetic about this guy. And well, he's the yeah. one who betrayed our secrets. And then we get to the very end. Yeah. And there's a picture of, you know, President Vladimir Putin in 2007, you know, handy defense minister, Anatoly. I'm reading a Serdyakov, Russia's highest civilian honor, the hero of the Russian Federation, posthumously to George Koval for his role in making the first atomic bomb. And I think that is the very first time I've looked at Vladimir Putin doing something and said to myself, well, that was a very nice thing of him to do. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. About I thought, wait a minute, how did I get this far? Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. no what, did you, and, what did you do, Anne? I don't know. Yeah, what, you what did a secrets? very, yeah, right. Well, secrets? be very careful with those. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, one of the fans of the book sent me a wonderful, his personal review of it. And in it, I, I, I called from it uh, when I was preparing for this time with you because uh, it was just a, you know, several, like about a week ago, and I it really grabbed me because um, he said, like a good novel, I'm led to an understanding of the lead character. That seems to be the point. Uh, though a traitor, 
that he was. George wasn't a killer. And that is also the point. He blended in so perfectly. We need to understand how that happens. He says we have to get out of the James Bond aura and realize what a sleeper agent really does. And then he said many Americans would do for their country of birth what he did for his country of culture and political leaning. And I thought that was, don't you think that's brilliant? Many Americans would. And that's how we tie to them, because you and I would do for our country of birth what he did for his country of culture and political leaning. He moved his loyalty to his country of culture and political leaning. And I think that I thought that was a brilliant comment on the part of the, the guy who said that, because I really believe that that is the underlying um, story here. Betrayals and the bad guys and the deceit and this and that killings, violence, this and that. No, 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 no. This is the real thing. And and the the real part. Uh, another person sent something uh, saying that uh, to her, what was so profound about the story was that um, here was a, a kid who graduated at age fifteen from high school, was a star on the debate team, was an actor. Did you catch the fact? as an aside yeah. that he was in the play nothing but the truth when he right. was in high school but at any rate and so and so then you know it, it makes you question hugely why someone would do this well he was like you know it's there's nothing we all we talked earlier about you know him being you know driven by his culture and poly. I mean, he was a true socialist, right? I mean, he was, right. well, he was a yes. real socialist, which I think it's, I think it's also ironic in that, you know, I mean, I, I still think that, you know, the one, the one action that he took that sort of led to him sort of coming out a little bit, you know, the GRU noticing him and, you know, writing a biography about him and then coming to more attention. I think it was that moment where he went, ironically, where he went to the U S embassy and applied for social security, <laughs> You know, he applied to the one social program, you know, that he might have been eligible for in the United States. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. But but he, oh, so, but going back to the motives, I mean, um, you have to, you know, what are, you, you've studied all espionage so thoroughly. So what are the typical motives? Well, money, idealism. But I think in George's in George's case, I think it was two things. I, I think that the his story, I think it's what Nick Clooney said. His story shows that that struggle between the ideologies of the American dream and the ideologies of the worker paradise. But at the same time, the decisions that he made really show. I think the backlash of bigotry. Yeah. I mean, he was a kid who grew up in a family, you know, of idealists who, you know, he was definitely influenced by the ideals of his parents and believed that there could be a, a world without oppression. I mean, they were believing that communism was the only way for that. And so, you know, he definitely believed those things. But, you know, what pushed him to believe those? Uh, because obviously growing up in Sioux City, being a star in his high school class, he, he didn't have friends he was sitting around talking about this with. It would, you know, so it's what would. And so I think it's the persistence. I think that's the underlying theme of his whole story. It's basically the human costs of oppression. Yeah. You know, it's the persistence of prejudice uh, in history. You know, what happens? To jump from his motivations a bit, 
you know, to look at, you know, a spy's tradecraft when, and every interaction with somebody, when you start telling him your history and he was a ladies man, so he's probably good at that. Um, I think it's important for spies just as much as writers to be able to create a sympathetic character of yourself. For example, when he just had a conversation with his landlady, apparently in the Bronx, and all she knew about him was that he, a few things about him and he was a loner, but that he grew up in an orphanage. In Cleveland. <laughs> I mean, he knew how to create <laughs> yeah, a very smart, a sympathetic yeah, character. Yeah, right. and I'm just wondering what, what are your tools as a writer to create a sympathetic character? So, it, yeah. So he convinced the landlady. And so uh, he convinced his students, you know, two of his former students have written biographies in, in Russian. Masha found those. And I have had exchanges with them. And yeah, and so, well, I think that, that that is the key to the importance of the story is that he, through his, perhaps be, his hard work, his loyalty to, you have to look at his loyalties. And that's where the human constants are. Like you, you and I have loyalties. What were his loyalties? Well, his family during the war, which might have been why he went ahead with the GRU, probably didn't have any choice, but protect them during the war, right? So the loyalty to family, loyalty to science. If I could interview him today, the first question I would ask him would be, were you a believer in nuclear parity? Did you do this because you were a scientist? You know, loyalty to science, loyalty to secular, being a secular Russian Jew, and loyalty to an ideal that was in his entire family as he was growing up. So so what happens is that, yes, he was a traitor. And I say in the book, this guy was a traitor. So study him well, because what we have to do as readers, as Americans, is to realize that, you know, we will always, maybe not always, but we are a target country for uh, espionage, right? So we have to really understand those loyalties. And so we don't have to be sympathetic. I, I don't uh, agree with his decisions, you know, but, but I have to tell a story that shows who the guy really was and who the guy really was, was part of his power of blending in. You know, there were others, that, and they're in the book, there were others who were obviously caught. Well, one of the reasons uh, spies were caught was that they hung out with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew each other. Uh, the thread was not hard to put together, but not George. You know, he, he did not belong to the Communist Party USA. He belonged to uh, an honorary fraternity of electrical engineers. He belonged to a bowling league. He played bridge. He was a, joint, he was a joiner. He was a joiner, like Lassen recommended. Joiner and like his handler was, and he was trained by the GRU for a year. You know, I, I think one of the most important points, and I think what uh, has fascinated me all through it, is just to think about, you know, is to find the facts, the facts that, you know, we absolutely can nail down and and then weave a, a narrative that the general reader will uh, be interested in reading and then, you know, take a deep breath and think, what are the lessons learned here? 
you know, not that we want to be friends with George, not that we're sympathetic to him, but on the other hand, that we understand as humans, we transcend all of these challenges that he faced. We transcend the details of his being a traitor to our country. And we look at the list of the challenges in his life and try to understand the decisions he made. So he didn't have to do these, you know, weekly encrypted messages via no, uh, no, radio no, no, channels. No, no he basically no. put a couple of reports together and then ultimately his report in 1949 was pretty, when he came back, was, um, was pretty comprehensive. That, that really fascinates me. And, you know, the details about the uh, contam- uh, radiation contamination safety procedures, you know, the health physics discipline. I, I believe was uh, founded at Oak Ridge during those years when he was a health physicist. And, you know, at first um, I didn't grab the significance of that for the Soviets. And then I read through a bunch of uh, interviews that the FBI had done with um, nuclear physicists at the time in the 1950s, one of whom uh, commented extensively on the importance of, you know, the espionage details coming from the West, uh, the importance of it quickening the development of the Soviet atomic bomb. But, and one of the things he mentioned was uh, the safety issues. He said, you know, especially when you were getting close to completing the project, they did not want to lose scientists. They did not want to lose workers. And so they really wanted to know uh, what George knew about health physics. And I think that's uh, that's new. It's fresh. I think it's don't you think that's fascinating? Well, it's fascinating that they would actually give that some credence. I mean, they're they're in the throes of trying to, you know, develop a nuclear bomb and catch up in this race that they would actually, that the GRU would stop and think, oh, wait, maybe we should think about safety. <laughs> but, um, but the fact that it was in that, the fact that it was in that report is pretty remarkable though. Yeah. Well, I think that it, it's important and, and I l- overlooked it completely at first for the same reason. It's, uh, you know, what would they care if this person dies, that person dies, let's just get it done. But, you know, you, if you have people who are, uh, have a lot of expertise who know what they're doing and, you know, you're working toward a deadline, then, you know, that could be uh, very important. And that's what some of those people who were interviewed said. Um, One of them is quoted in the book talking about how uh, knowledge of the safety from radiation contamination would definitely have quickened the development of the bomb. So that's, that's new. Knowledge of safety was quick in the development of it? Yeah, there's a, yeah. Oh dear. If you can wait a second, I'll find that quote. Sure. I mean, I'll take your word for it that it's in the book. Yeah. Uh, and that, that really, there are many people who were interviewed. Let's see. It would be, uh, I think it was either Stuart Bloom. Uh, last name started with a B. So let's see. It was Stuart Bloom or, Okay, uh, Seymour Block, that's who it was. So 178, thank goodness for indexes, so indices. Uh, okay, Stuart, uh, yes, Seymour Block, he worked at Livermore Site uh, 
the University of California Radiation Laboratory. He was uh, interviewed by the FBI and he spoke, commented on the possible importance to the Russians of Koval's reports about safety issues. At Oak Ridge, he had been assigned to the health physics division. This guy, he told the agents that he and Koval in their health physics routines had been exposed to specific classified information, for example, the details of why and how the plutonium was produced, where it was shipped, what was known about the large reactors in Hanford. Health physics data was classified, he said, and anyone working in the division had to have known that Oak Ridge was part of the project to create an atomic bomb. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay, here it is. Uh, he also talked at length regarding the significance of what Koval knew about radiation monitoring techniques, tolerances, and instrumentation. All right. Though health physics did not contribute in a direct way to the development of the bomb, it was, he said, quote, highly important, unquote, to the success of the project. The threats and dangers of losing technicians and scientists exposed to radiation was a deadly risk to the project at all stages, especially as the bomb test drew near when it could be difficult to quickly replace well-informed experts. Um, the American oh, that makes complete sense. I mean, they're not looking yes. at the long, they're not concerned about necessarily about the long-term effects, but like, wait, we don't have to replace, uh, which implies I, that the Soviets lost some scientists in their development of the bomb. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, believe me, that's on, it was on my list of questions, but also, uh, there's another great little detail here. And that's that Koval, he knew he, this guy knew had even published a well-researched article on radiation contamination of the air. And now that article came out in June, 1945. Think about it, that all of these nuclear physicists, you know, worldwide read the same journals. And that article came out in an international journal. So, you know, that was that's an important part, I think. He must have known that the health physics department at Oak Ridge was brand new. You know, this is a new discipline. And wow, as a scientist, I can learn a lot here, start writing papers about it, blah, 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 blah. But the paper he published then could have been something that communicated information uh, to Kurchatov, you know, who was the scientist running the... Uh, oh, that's interesting that he could have, he could have been... Uh... Yeah. You could have been transmitting information just yes. through scientific or academic white papers, you know? Exactly. And I mean, look at the timing of it. Anyway, this thank you very much, Anne, for thank you for being on the live drop. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mark. That was Anne Hagedorn. Her book, Sleeper Agent, The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away, is available wherever you get your books. There'll be a link in the show notes. Also, if you're enjoying this season, uh, you can contribute with a one-time PayPal uh, donation or also if you subscribe on patreon you'll be eligible to full transcripts of all the episodes some debriefs and some other exclusive content um, just want to thank everybody for listening um, you can find the show on twitter at the live drop and stay tuned for the next episode with jack divine who talks about his book the spy master's prison and the transmission 